Welcome to the Mental Health Boot Camp Podcast. Great. This is the podcast where four psychotherapists, three of us Canadian, one of us American, serving cutting edge mental health knowledge. I am Dr. Ryan Howes, a clinical psychologist from Pasadena, California. And I'm Dr. Brooke Lewis, a registered clinical counselor from the greater Vancouver area. And I'm Joanna Boyd, a psychotherapist from Port Moody. And I'm Chris Boyd, psychotherapist from Coquitlam. Welcome back, everybody. We were off last week. It was St. Patrick's Day. I believe people had stuff to do on that day. Yes. Yes. Okay. There was a live music, which is wonderful. Um, I think we maybe talked about this in a podcast prior, but yeah, St. Patrick's Day up here is um, a bit of a big deal. Like there's celebrations everywhere. And then the Celtic dancers, like all the dance troops circle between everywhere, whether it's uh, like pubs or legions or whatever. So you're getting the, the dancers are coming through live music everywhere. Everyone seems to be in pretty good spirits and it's a good time. Yeah. Awesome. That sounds great. Are there a lot of Irish in Canada? I guess people so. Irish descendants there? I think we actually have a pretty good um, Irish population in Vancouver. But from mm-hmm. what I know from a close friend, uh, I think a lot of people, I don't know. Yeah, young Irish people come here for a little bit at least. Mm-hmm. Or for... the lineage, right? Like a lot of people. Cool. And that yeah. for sure. Yeah, like Chris and Joanna, you're part Irish, and I'm part part as well. Ryan, are you part? I'm mostly yes. Yeah. Yes, my my mother's maiden name is McCormick, and oh. uh, and <laughs> Ryan is actually a family name. It's her mother's maiden name was Ryan, so it's uh, oh, lots nice. of lots that's of Irish a, here. It's a wee Irish right there. Yeah. Oh yes. Yes, love that Irish stuff. I've never been to Ireland though. That's my <gasps> my one. I know either. Mm. It's a great you place. Said you neither, Brooke? No, I was in Scotland. Ooh. Ireland. Yeah, it's on the list. Mm. <laughs> yeah, great place. Mm. It's a great place. It is a great place. It's so Scotland. Different, but great. What What do you What did you like about Ireland? What was the best part? Um. I've fortunately been to Ireland a couple times. I just, I liked when we got out of the cities. Um, and last time we were there, Chris and I and my folks and we, yeah, just drove, drove to, I think Killarney. Um, yeah, just all the green. I liked kind of all the winding roads. We, a lot of cliffs, like Mm. just the edges of the earth feel really, I really, I think that would probably be a top thing for me. And it's good to get the freshest pint of Guinness you can. That doesn't hurt. So true yeah i think i've actually been to ireland six times and it's um yeah usually any trip i go to in europe we end up in ireland but um yeah to joanna's point if you get out of the cities like dublin is kind of just a big city it's it's got some some history of course but it's the smaller towns that are the most beautiful so dramatic landscapes and cliffs that all these little towns have some great pubs and live music um again a lot of history Belfast is a really great city as well. Um, so a lot of natural uh, attractions, um, a rich culture. So oh. great place to be. That's 
Awesome. See, a really cool thing about those traveling to Europe is you get on a plane for 40 minutes and you get off and then the architecture and the, the food, the music, the, yeah, just the, the cultural shifts though are, are so dramatic, right? Definitely. Yeah, we get on a plane here in Vancouver for 40 minutes, we end up in Kelowna. Yeah. Quite similar to Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Or maybe Calgary, perhaps, but. That's, that's a definitely a bucket list place. Brooke, let's go. Let's get over there. Let's do it. Okay. Sign me up while we can before November hits, right? And then it will be like shutdown mode again. What? <laughs> Not with that attitude. <laughs> Gosh, the positivity there. Being realistic, guys. Being realistic. No, we can do all the things. Get a little crazy for the next six months. Why November? Oh, cold and flu season. And uh, then I think something will like they'll restrict something or put some. I don't know. Are you fortune telling right now or catastrophizing? I, I am. Okay. Good. It's good that you recognize it. Okay, so this is just speculation. Brooke doesn't have any special secret insider information or anything, right? No, I was not texting with Bonnie Henry where she told me that in November, no, that did not happen. Bonnie Henry is our public health officer. Ah, mm-hmm. got it. Well, okay, we'll get over there before November, maybe. We'll see. We'll do a podcast from there. That sounds fun. Yeah. yeah. Love that. Fun. Yes. Well, speaking of podcasts, maybe we should get into our topic. Sure. And Brooke is the ambusher tonight, right? Sure am. I'm going to send it to Ryan right now. Okay. Brooke knows the topic. None of the rest of us do. Here it comes. All the way down there. Okay. Okay. Well, I got to ask about this one, Brooke. All right. Here is the topic. Ethics. Hooray. What are some what are some of the main ethical principles therapists adhere to? Are our ethical standards similar to other professionals? What are some common ethical dilemmas faced in counseling? Hooray. Uh, the reason this comes up i know uh, my in my family we have a saying called like dry as a popcorn fart and sometimes that's what ethics is dry as a popcorn fart and um but the reason (laughs) please keep listening everyone (laughs) trying to pull pull all the stops right now (laughs) but uh so recently for my registration body, the BCACC, BC Association of Clinical Counselors, there was a posting and I've applied to sit on the ethics and standards committee. So I did a little interview with them last week. I find out tomorrow if I'm going to be on the on the committee, but um, it's been on my mind. They were asking me questions. I had to fill out this application. So I thought, you know what, let's have a discussion here about ethics. That is hopefully not as dry as a popcorn fart, (laughs) right? Hopefully. <laughs> Ther- therapists kind of grown a little bit at ethics, which I think it gets, it's, it's not all that fair because ethics is a really important part of our work, of course. Um, we each have to do 
continuing education to keep our licenses intact, right? And uh, and as a part of that, at least down here, um, some portion of that for for psychologists here, we have to do six hours every every two years of an ethics course, and wow. it's kind of like um, kind of like traffic school in that. People kind of go, oh, do I have to do this? <laughs> or, you know, is this, uh, but they try to spice it up a little bit, try to make it more interesting. But really, ethics is pretty crucial and, uh, and, and it's absolutely essential for, for our work to function. So I think it's a good topic, Brooke. Yeah, yeah. And I do think it, like, or the population I work with, I still sometimes work with teens and there's extra ethical considerations there, or even young adults where, you know, um, it might be different in different professions. So for example, a parent of a 21 year old might call to book an appointment for their, their child, but technically, ethically, we're not really supposed to book that. It's the 21 year old that needs to call in to book their own appointment. Um, but I'm sure if that parent was calling to book a dentist appointment, a massage therapy appointment, I, I don't know if they would really question that um yeah so i think there's some extra things maybe that we have as as therapists um sure. and clients so general population that might be listening um there might be some things that you didn't realize or you might go oh that's why my therapist isn't able to do that or oh i didn't realize that's maybe why they referred me or wh whatnot yeah, it's true um there's a lot of life coaches out there um and uh, not to, you know, not to talk badly about their profession. I think a lot of people uh, are supported greatly by life coaches. Uh, they use a lot of solution-focused approaches and a lot of follow-up and encouragement. Um, but sometimes they don't. They don't actually have a lot of the ethical considerations or guidelines that we have as, as therapists, right? So around confidentiality, for instance, or dual relationships. Um, it's, it's quite, and there's no actual governing body. body. So if, if you do have a concern in terms of the support that you got, um, there's no one that you can technically talk to about that, right? Whereas uh, we belong to colleges or associations that kind of offer that, um, you know, those guidelines as well as uh, recourse or um, kind of a system to, to protect the, the rights, the safety of our clients. That is true. So, gosh, should we should we do what we usually do and define ethics? That seems like a big topic. I guess. Big question. I feel like that was assumed on what it was. I didn't think about defining it. We might as well. Well, because I think there's something, I think there can be a confusion for some folks as well, because I think laws and ethics are sometimes people kind of see them as one and the same and they're really not. Mm -hmm. So a law is, is a legal standard that people have to abide by or they can you know, face criminal consequences or uh, some charges. So you know, stealing is, is against the law, right? That's something you can't do. Um, ethics are more about a, the, what they would call like the standard of practice. Like what is, what is something that's expected of a uh, in this case, a therapist, these, these sorts of standards that we kind of uh, agree to and try to uphold. And the uh, something may be unethical, but it's not necessarily illegal, for example. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and the rule within our our registering bot our associations. Yep, that's right. That's right. Saying there, and the the reason why this is kind of a an interesting area is there's there's oftentimes a lot of it depends when it comes to ethical issues. It's not always hard and fast. There can be a lot of gray area when it comes to some things. And what our ethics codes often say is, you know, uh, a professional in good standing will do their best to uphold these standards, you know, and maybe that's by consulting with somebody or, you know, it may look different case by case, whether or not someone is acting ethically. Mm. So it's uh, it's a little bit of a, uh, a gray area at times. And so we'll just try to dive into what kind of the, the, the big ethical issues are when it comes to psychotherapy, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what are, the, what are some of the big ones? This is a big topic. It <laughs> Confidentiality. Confidentiality, yep. Yeah, I think, that, well, that's the top one, right? Mm -hmm. Above all else, confidentiality. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, yeah, Chris already mentioned like dual relationships. I think that's worth touching on yep. as well. Informed consent. Yeah. They're just getting appropriate consent and making sure clients know their rights when, when it comes to receiving counseling. Yes. Yes. Um, they're deaf. Certain, uh, yeah. Dual relationship kind of covers, but a, a big one in, in psychotherapy is the kind of romantic involvement. Um, you know, any sort of sexual uh, behavior uh, is strictly prohibited when it comes to psychotherapists and their clients. That's a big one. Uh, so let's start with confidentiality because that's, that's, that's really a big one for us. And some people don't realize that that is such a high standard for us that we're, we have drilled into us from the first day of, of graduate school that it is so key, so important to have confidentiality um, remain kind of a completely, uh, you know, the highest standard for us. So why do you think that is? What is that about? Well, no one's, it's keeping everything private. If someone comes to talk to you about their most personal things, I think they want to be ensured that it's going to stay that way. It's going to stay private. We're not going to be, it's not going to go public or anything like that. Um, I don't know. That's what comes to mind. I feel like we wouldn't really be having anyone come to see us if they, if there is risk of these things getting out, mm -hmm. but there are limitations. There's definitely some uh, some of the, I don't want to say magic therapy, but that's what I'm going to say, is knowing as well that this is completely private and confidential, like not just the risk of it being leaked or shared or, or whatnot, but um, like people can see us in utmost privacy. Like uh, we really do take confidentiality or often most therapists do to, I think, a different level than other professionals down to often offices aren't on a, on a street level because if an office was on a street level, then passersby could see you go in the door and would know that you're accessing counseling. Yeah, but Ryan, Ryan's old office actually had um, a setup where a client comes in one way and actually leaves the other, other way, right? So clients actually don't cross paths, isn't that right? Right. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, my office had a people would enter and come into the waiting room, and then I would open the door to the waiting room. They come into my office, we'd meet, and they'd exit a door that went directly out of the hallway, so they wouldn't have to go through the waiting room again. So if some if the next client was in the waiting room, they wouldn't see them. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and all a lot of the offices in my building were set up that way just just because of confidentiality. But okay. not, sorry, I was going to say not all offices are like that. Like the one we work in, it's a waiting room where you can sit across from other people. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, again, is is where we get into this stuff with with ethics, where it's like, yeah, that's not a that's not a law that people can't you know, you can't walk through the waiting room or there's or that's even that's even necessary that people can't see one another or see that you're walking into someone's office. But it's something that uh, because of this, the standard that we have on confidentiality, these are things that people might, might consider. So I like to say sometimes that we in this profession are professional secret keepers. That's, that's kind of our, our role. Um, and we have to take extreme care to make sure that we're not divulging identities of our clients to anybody. Our, if we take notes, they have to be uh, very heavily protected to make sure these notes don't don't go anywhere. No one can, no one's going to find out that uh, that someone's going to that someone's coming to us. Um, so down it, to uh, just for listeners, if that's a paper copy, it's supposed to be like in a double locked procedure, which means it's like uh, if it's in a file in a in a filing cabinet, the filing cabinet has to be locked. And then there needs to be another lock to even get there. So that would mean the front office needs to be locked or wherever the, the filing room door would have to be locked. So there needs to be two layers of locking and electronic files need to be encrypted. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All of There's that. also the other piece with confidentiality too is where if you see one of your clients in public, you actually, you can't say hi to them unless they say hi to you first. So it's also, it's often good to give your clients a heads up on that. So it doesn't seem like you're trying your hardest to avoid them at Safeway. You may take that personally, but um, yeah, sometimes yeah. I don't think about that, right? Mm -hmm. That is true. Uh, if someone, someone calls me on the phone and says, hey, I'm the brother of somebody. Um, is that person your client? I, I can't answer that. I can't answer that. Uh, confirm I, or deny. I can't confirm or deny that unless I have the written permission of my client. Um, and, but even, I can't even allude to the idea that I need to seek that permission from the client because uh, that would be giving it away. Right. So I can't confirm or deny. Um, yeah. So, so that's safety, right. It's, it's yeah. about, um, the client feels safe sharing very personal information as well as the fact you're talking to a therapist is their business. I mean, it doesn't have to be anyone else's. Right. So they have the ability to, to keep that to themselves, keep that private. But, and I, and I yeah. think the principle kind of behind this ethical principle is trust. People need to know if they're going to share some intimate parts of their lives, they need to know that they can trust that the therapist is going to keep that secret. They're not going to blab it to anybody or it's not going to leak out somewhere. Um, and that's really the only way this is going to work. This relationship works is if there's that trust established, right? So part of the trust is knowing this person has a license. They have a, a governing board who is uh, keeping tabs on them. And if they slip up and, you know, share information with people, um, there will be consequences. Yeah. So I was volunteering at a, uh, a, a Rotary event this past weekend. It was a Shredathon. And um, um, our dad, Joanna and I's dad, has been on this podcast before. He's a psychologist. And uh, he's also a Rotarian. So we're down there picking out these boxes of paper to get shredded for a good cause. 
and a fellow came up to me and he goes, Hey, you're, you know, my son, so-and-so, um, Jimmy Jenkins, uh, you're working with him, like upbeat and, and happy and just wanted to make that connection. It's like, I saw your dad there and I work with your dad and I know you work with my son. So you actually caught me off guard because I was picking up paper out of his trunk and uh, he had this information and I guess he saw, I never met him before, but it actually caught me off guard. And I was like, did I actually, um, you know, in that moment, I technically should have said, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. And I think I just kind of nodded it or just took it and said, oh, I, hey, how are you doing? Kind of thing and try to divert the conversation in a different direction. But mm. sometimes these ethical dilemmas pop up and you least expect them. You're kind of caught off guard a bit. Mm. Chris, tell me that Jimmy Jenkins is a made up word. Or make it made up name. Thanks for asking, Ryan. Jimmy Jenkins is a made up name because of ethics. We can't, use, we can't use real names. No. So that name has been changed, completely changed. Yes. Uh, to hide his identity because we respect confidentiality. Yep. And part of confidentiality would be even, and part of what gets in informed consent is that like we don't involve anyone else in the person's counseling and, unless they approve that we do, like in the decision making process, or if they have a family member or someone else to get involved. Um, they, yeah, or if they're able to, yeah, any limits or if doctors or anything, it, they need to kind of release, um, give a release of information, they have to sign something for that. So it's, um, yeah, it's really puts the power in the client's hands when it comes to counseling for mostly everything. Again, there are limits, which we will go over, but yeah. I did an event a few years ago, uh, a storytelling event where therapists would tell stories about kind of impactful sessions that they had with their clients or relationships they have with their clients. And the first thing that, that we did, uh, as I actually made every therapist sign that either the, the story that they were telling would be um, a so wildly disguised that even the client themselves reading it wouldn't recognize themselves in the story or that they had permission from the client to tell the story. And, uh, and then there's a big disclaimer. If you look at the videos, the first thing that comes up on the, on the video is the, uh, the client's identities are disguised or we have permission to use it. It's just because that's, that's so important. The stories are, are interesting, but it's not about revealing the information or the identifying information about the client. It's really about the therapist uh, experience in the, in, in the room. But so just whenever you're hearing stories, even, you know, people write books about therapy, therapists will write books about what they've seen in therapy. You'll always see a disclaimer saying, this is uh, a conglomeration of several clients, maybe, or it's, uh, it's, or the person has given me permission to tell the story. Cause it's just, cause that's, it's really important for all of us. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, another little point I want to, make before we talk about the, the limits of confidentiality is that that I've known some clients who don't quite understand that the the ethics of confidentiality applies to us therapists but it doesn't apply to them <laughs> they can talk about therapy as much as they want they can tell they could share who we are as a therapist if they want to they can they they have no ethics code uh, for them based on confidentiality if they don't they want to talk about what they talk about in therapy, they're welcome to do that. 
Or if they see us out in public, they can come up to us and talk to us if they want to. Mm-hmm. Um, we're the ones who have the, the license to protect. They don't. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah. Yes. For sure. So uh, the limits to confidentiality. We were getting into some gray areas a little bit here. So when, when in our times when that confidentiality rule or, or ethics code is, uh, is set aside? Yeah, and that's, uh, yeah, the big, essentially big three, right? So uh, threat of harm to self, others, or uh, any disclosure of abuse of a person under the age of 18. Past or current. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially when we we need to breach this confidentiality clause in order to protect somebody. Yep. We need to protect the client from harming themselves perhaps, or from hurting somebody else, or, or particularly if they talk about a minor being abused in some way or another, that's something that we need to, and by breaching confidentiality, it's more about, we're talking about talking to some authorities about that sharing that information so that the whoever's at harm or at risk is, will be protected. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And that might look different depending on the situation. Yeah. Like if it's a adult who's threatening suicide or is a higher risk for suicide, then we're going to have to contact like their emergency contact person um, or get them access to uh, psychiatric care. Versus if um, there's a report of abuse of a minor, then we're going to have to call Child Protective Services. Sure. Yeah. Now, this is when I talk about the the grace area here. This is where therapeutic judgment comes in and some of the the challenges of of this work. Um, Because, like, let's say you're working with a client who's been depressed for a long time and they say, yeah, sometimes I just wish this was all over. I wish it was. I just wish I you know, wasn't around anymore. That's not really, I mean, if we dive into that, we don't need to go all, we don't make this all about suicidality, but something like a disclosure like that is not likely to trigger us to say, oh, I need to contact the authorities right away. No, but it will trigger us to ask more questions Mm -hmm. to decipher if we need to. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. See, yeah, risk assessment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And then I'm going to switch it. Oh, Chris, do you have another confidentiality? I was going to divert to dual relationships. I was going to say, should we sing a song or something just to keep our listeners listening for our ethics <laughs> conversation? Or just repeat the word words popcorn fart. That's, <laughs> that's, I think just throw that in now and then. That keeps me entertained, anyways. So yeah. no one else uses that phrase is yeah. what I'm oh drier than a popcorn fart yeah oh, I've heard that before for sure I just think it's worth bringing up a few times because it's yeah it's good all right we got it hooked in yep they're still listening all right Brooke take it away carry on dual relationships another element what are dual relationships why are they bad what what do those look like hmm. so again to Ryan's point like it's it's not laws black and white polarized laws um you use your best judgment right so i think we all work in in big cities there's lots of therapists in the areas so usually there's no need to have a dual relationship in terms of 
um, seeing a client, whereas in a small town, where there's only one counselor or therapist in the area, you may have to um, kind of um, kind of approach that situation a little differently. So the idea of a dual relationship is that um, if you have a pre-existing relationship with the client, with the individual, then um, it's probably ethically best not to also have the role as their therapist. Mm -hmm. Or if it's likely for an outside relationship, like if you're um, one comes to mind, there was a gal that popped into my uh, book, a teenager, and I recognized the mom's last name. And I looked into it and I was like, oh, this is a, a friend's sister-in-law, like a friend's niece, essentially. Um, so I had to refer that that client on because if I go to my friend's birthday party, her niece is potentially likely to be there. Like I'm close enough to this friend that family members would be at the same gathering. Mm -hmm. And that would enter into a bit of a dual relationship there. Or if my friend were then talking about the situation in her sister-in-law's home, then that's going to make an issue. Yeah. So you got to make that judgment call along the way. So I've been in situations like that too, where you meet someone and it turns out it was, for instance, a friend of my nephew's, one of his, um, one of his friends from school. And it was a decent probability that I may, you know, um, see him at a similar event, like a birthday party or whatever it might be. So I decided just to, we, we talked about it and referred the client on. So you have to assess it because sometimes it's like a friend of a friend of a friend or, and it's far enough for like, okay, this is, this should be fine. Right. Mm. There's no pre-existing friendship or is not, this is not someone within your inner social network. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, typically, like you said, big city, it's easy enough to avoid. Like if, well, it's funny, Chris, like you saw someone who knew our nephew. So it's just small world in terms of the community and people, we kind of, sometimes there's these six degrees of connection or less. But when it comes to small towns, there's not really a choice of multiple counselors. And so that's where dual relationships tend to be like you, are, you know, everyone. And so you might know your counselor in that way. So um, I think those are the only like in a small town work where there's not accessibility to other therapists. I think that's one of the only situations where it's okay to have a dual relationship. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Right. There's not really another. Yeah. Well, because I think, I think what I think what someone has to make sure of, and this is again where this this judgment comes in, and some of the gray area is 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 there a potential for any harm, and that's where someone needs to to take and take that into account. Like, let's say that again, um, the small town thing. You know, you're a counselor, you're the only therapist in a small town. You're seeing a, a client. Client comes in. Turns out that teacher that 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 client is a teacher at your kid's school. Your kid's going to have that teacher at some point, right? Um, you're talking about it with the client. You're trying to kind of assess, see, is that, is that problematic? Um, is there, is there any other counselor that could see this person? How, how, what might the conflicts possibly be? If you find out after working with somebody for a while, oh yeah, they are in the same, uh, poker group as someone else that you see, is that, could that be a problem down the road? Is that something that, that could potentially be harmful to that client. You know, are they going to, they have a conflict with the other client that you have and now you're kind of caught in the middle. It's all about kind of assessing through that. And, and hopefully you're doing some consulting with other therapists about that, or uh, mm -hmm. even contacting everyone's, everyone has 
uh, insurance and oftentimes you can consult with your insurance board to yeah. see is this going to be a problem down the road for sure okay. in this day and age too with virtual That's sessions the client right yeah. oh, sorry we didn't hear you the client mm -hmm. sorry chris just quickly brooke though what did you say because you couldn't hear you because there's two people talking and your voice got cut out oh i was saying ultimately it's what's in the best interest of the client mm -hmm. that's right yeah i was just saying uh uh, these days, we've kind of with uh, COVID, we kind of normalized uh, virtual counseling. So even people in small towns have access to lots of therapists in their state or province, whatever it might be. There's also like there's we have implicit biases. We all have them as human beings, and when you start to know of someone or you're, you're connected to someone, that can actually impact the quality of the therapeutic experience. Right? We have preconceived notions that may impact your objectivity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how does that apply to this? Well, again, I, um, back to, uh, back to that client I met who turned out to be a, a friend of my clients or sorry, a friend of my nephews. Um, you know, as at his age, there's going to be some, issues and challenges he's experiencing within school and his social network, right? So I may actually have a different perspective or, or views on it based on what he's saying, right? Or my responses might be biased based on the fact I know one, you know, the fact that my nephew's involved with it. Yeah. And you might be talking about, you know, our nephew in that group. Like it's just too much of a little, that would be awkward. It wouldn't be appropriate there. Yeah, so I guess in even like a small town setting, you you may you know of people. You may have again these these prejudgments, or even though sometimes we're not aware of it, you may have quick reactions or ideas that pop into your mind because you have you know information about this person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Does that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, your perspective as like a neutral observer gets skewed. It's harder to remain a neutral observer if you're familiar with the people people that they're talking about or the systems mm. or whatever, because in your own mind you've had experiences with those people, so you're yeah. no no longer neutral, and that's not fair to the client yeah. always, right? But just to note, in situations I know we're talking a lot about small town stuff here. In a small town where everyone knows everyone, and you're seeing a therapist, you as the therapist still have to do your best to operate like without a bias like I think and then I think that is for everyone part of our ethics code as well is to not put our own biases on clients or if they're talking about something that we might have different opinions on it's for us to keep our own biases in check so I think that's really challenged if you have no choice but to know a lot of these people who they're talking about but even in our work um, ethically as part of respecting our clients and care for clients we gotta make sure we're not putting our own biases into the therapy I think True. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Good point. Uh, they're yeah. Small towns are, are, you know, I live in a big town, right? Pasadena, Los Angeles, greater Los Angeles area. <laughs> Evan's shocked and surprised at how, how many times through the years, you know, say I'm, I'm working with somebody. I've been working with somebody for a long time and they're like, Oh yeah, I went to this party and I was talking to these people and Suddenly I realized, wait a minute, I, I know one of those other people. <laughs> like, 
this or I, I saw that other person maybe in therapy many years ago or something like that. It's like, wow, it's it's pretty amazing how really interconnected a lot of a lot of the world is. And these are, of course, things that I'm never going to share with this person or, you know, share with that client or say, oh, yeah, I, I used to see that other person as a there. No, I'm never going to share that. Um, but it's it is just an odd little coincidence sometimes how we see the world kind of weaving together even in big, big towns, you know? Do you ever have it happen where you're talking to someone and they're coming to see you because a friend of theirs who's, who's seen you, like they're recommended by someone who's seen you and they don't say who. <laughs> so you're just like, okay. But then maybe after, or it happens. Yeah. Just the community kids are in or whatever. All of a sudden you put together that, oh, I think I've actually seen that person, but they don't know that. Or it just mm-hmm. it totally interconnects quite a bit. But we often get, oh, like someone I know referred to you, they've seen you or they've heard good things. So they yeah. are fine with each other knowing that they have the same therapist. And sometimes we're the ones in the dark. But uh, anyways, it's, it's true. It's intriguing. Yeah. Our practice is quite prominent in this suburb of Coquitlam or Tri-Cities areas. So it's not unusual where you have a client who's having issues with the bully at school and you actually see that bully from their school. Yeah. And obviously you have to keep that to yourself, but these, these situations do arise, right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. yeah. That, that gets, that definitely gets into that gray area, doesn't it? Right. Like, mm-hmm. is it a conflict of interest for you to see? Um, yeah, absolutely. So to be more blatant about some of these things um, in like dual relationship stuff, like a therapist, um, you know, you're seeing someone for, for, for therapy uh, and they are a um, auto mechanic, right? It's probably not a good idea for the therapist to say, oh, hey, I've got this car. Can you work on it for me? And let's, uh, you know, let's work out a deal here. Like, that's not, that, that gets too muddy. It, it uh, can mess with the, uh, the therapy yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. Or let me hire you to, you know, do some work around my house or whatever it might be. Just, just, Try to, the idea is that we keep it clean, keep it as simple as possible, uh, if at all possible, right? For sure. Yeah, gifts, gifts get into that ethics part, receiving gifts from clients as well as giving gifts. That's yeah. different opinions on that, but that can be seen as not ethical. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I think it's any trades of services is discouraged. I think it's not, it's not black and white though. I think not I remember re- reading case studies about that ethical case mm-hmm. studies and in certain circumstances, it might be appropriate. You have to do your best to weigh the services and, and whatnot. But I think uh, it's, uh, to your point, Ryan, it's probably best just to avoid those circumstances altogether. Yeah. Let's not invite the potential problems that might be involved with that, if at all possible. Right. But mm-hmm. again, that's gray sometimes. So confidentiality, dual relationships. What else we got? Joanna, what was yours? Oh, I just said informed consent. I just like when you start at like with a counselor, they should review confidentiality. They should review how you can make or resolve any kind of issues you have with the therapist or uh, mm-hmm. at any point, anyone you want to involve with therapy. Um, just letting them know, informing them of their rights as a client. Um, and so that they can make a judgment call of, okay, I want to go forward with this. 
Mm -hmm. So we, we have our due diligence to review those things when we meet someone. So that's part of it. <laughs> yeah. Right down to, yeah. Um, how long is the session and uh, fees for service, cancellation policies, confidentiality waivers, uh, how to make um, a complaint to our registration, our registered bodies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, should you not be happy, here's what you do and how to report that and yeah. Yep. <laughs> there so we are. Chris being a popcorn fart <laughs> to spice things up for watchers, which he put on uh, a filter of very pixelated glasses for those who are listening, not watching. Yeah. Um, I think another part of ethics would be just about our duty in terms of respectful care, just respecting clients and care for clients. So we got to make sure that we're not going to see people for issues that are outside of our wheelhouse or that we're not knowledgeable, you know, about, um, and that we would consult as necessary and, you know, refer on if necessary. So that's all part of so when people go to see therapists to trust in the fact that this person is legit, that they they know what they're doing. And if they don't, they would be upfront with that and refer on. So that's all part of it. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Your competence in that area. Yeah. That is true. Mm -hmm. Uh okay. Informed consent is important. Uh, let me let's talk about the the romance component for a second here too, because that's that's something that some clients are concerned about. Because I talked about this in an article a while back called uh, "A Client's Guide to Transference," and transference is this kind of this thing that happens in therapy, and I also believe it happens in a lot of life where we just sort of. Um, we have some feelings about somebody or we start to relate to somebody in a way that's sort of familiar to us, or it has something to do with, with, with something going on, uh, some of our needs or something that we want or, or we're perceiving, even though it might not actually be happening in reality. So let's say that you uh, sit down next to a friend, uh, sit down next to someone on the bus and they remind you of your friend. Uh, from high school and then you start talking to them like you're, they're your friend from high school there's you're kind of transferring something onto that person or more commonly it's like you have you know, maybe you you had a parent who was a really harsh authoritarian parent and then you have bosses at work and you kind of assume that they're going to treat you the same way this is the shorthand uh transference thing sometimes people fall in love with their therapist uh, and sometimes that has more to do with what's going on um, in the client's world. Maybe they've just never been listened to before, never been, you know, someone pay that much attention to them. They've always wanted that. So they really long for that. And so they fall in love with their therapist. And I think a, a well-trained therapist will be able to handle that and work with that and uh, talk to them about that and see how these are, these are, unmet needs that are finally being met for the client. And of course it feels good to have someone uh, listening to you and paying attention and caring for you in this way. However, there's also a boundary here and it will never go beyond uh, just these, these feelings and thoughts that will never be acted upon. And it's, it's so crucial, so important for clients to know that the therapist is not going to step over the line 
and uh, take advantage of those feelings or uh, ask a client out. If the therapist starts to develop feelings for the client, that's, there's just, there's always an ironclad law. <laughs> this, in this case, it is a law as well as a, as an ethics code. You just cannot do that in this, uh, in this line of work. Mm-hmm. Also, it's not appropriate to be friends with your clients. Like once you actually get along with them, I think we have to wait a couple of years after if, if like, should anyone ever want a friendship with someone, but that's not the case that's encouraged, but it's like, in terms of like even sharing your number with the client and being able to communicate outside, or I've heard of some situations where people want to be friends with their therapist or try to connect with them outside. And, and so sometimes boundaries there are tough, but that's again, not something that a client or a counselor would encourage if those boundaries are wanting to be crossed. Is it four years? I thought it was two. Yeah. I thought it was two as well. Yeah. Yeah. So after final session. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't think there's a. I don't think there's a law, a, a date, a, a time limit in the states. I think there's uh, just an idea that we should try to keep the the relationship professional because you never know. Even if the therapy ends, that person might need therapy again at some other point in their life, and they want to come back to therapy. Um, and you know, as as their therapist, we should be able to be available to them, not as yeah. their not as their buddy. Um, there's there's some sort of a a little bit of a guideline when it comes to like dating a client in the States where they would say there would have to be at least two years of no contact with the person. But even then it's, if it is ever brought to light, it'll come across, it'll come up to a a licensing board and they will definitely frown upon that. So not encouraged. Yeah. Anyway, a big part of that is the power differential. So what's happened, I mean, through the course of therapy, the the therapist learns an incredible amount about the client and the client doesn't learn tickety-boo about the therapist, right? Um, So naturally there's a power differential where it's, it's, you're not on an even playing field there. So they seem to think that the magic time is gonna fix that or recorrect that, but it doesn't, you're still, one person knows a lot more about the other person, which creates a power dynamic, and that's unhealthy to start with. Well, and again, these these principles are in place to protect clients. It's more to protect clients than it is to protect therapists. And the idea here is we don't want any opportunity for a, a therapist to take advantage of that power differential, right? Yeah. So that's that's why that's there. Yes. So no dating. In fact, uh, we're supposed to hand out a, a little pamphlet to to clients, or at least include that in the in the consent that this this pamphlet exists. That says uh, the title of it is just "Professional Therapy Never Includes Sex." <laughs> That's the title of the of the pamphlet, and that can be yeah. found on found online if you want to see it. That's that's just right up front. That's not going to be the case. Okay. That's interesting that it like, uh, you know, there needs to be a pamphlet. Yep. There is that pamphlet. Yeah. Maybe it depends on like, uh, the modality that you use and the length of, of therapy. Like I think of Irv Yalom's book, the gift of, uh, gift of therapy. And he talks very candidly if he senses any type of dynamics there that might be unhealthy, then he talks about it, right? He hashes it out with the clients. But 
Um, yeah, it's interesting. Up here, I don't, I don't think we've seen pamphlets like that. I think a lot of us use more short-term types of modalities as well. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Uh, something to be very aware of, though. Yeah. Well, I, I, my type of work is, is a very a relational style, right? Kind of a relational psychodynamic style where I, I have no problem disclosing some things about my life and, and talking with clients as long as it's in the service of the therapy, as long as it's helpful for our work together. Um, and I certainly do feel like I form a, a close tie with a lot of my clients. And that's, that's a very rewarding, very rewarding part of the work. Um, but also, you know, we need to know that this is, this is a professional relationship and there, there are some limits here as well. And, uh, and really in the end, we know that the relationship is all really about serving them. It's not about serving me. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. If I have, if I have unmet friendship needs or relational needs, it's up to me to meet those <laughs> outside of therapy, you know, with the people in my life. Right. Or, That's why or, we do this podcast, right? That's why we... we yeah, we, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I meet with you guys so I don't end up dating clients. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Um, what other sort of interesting ethical issues are there? I guess those are kind of the big, big four. Anything else that comes up? Yeah. Yeah, what comes up? Oh, go ahead, Brooke. Yeah. No, I was going to say um, there, there's tons. I mean, uh, little nuances and things, but I think those are some really great big categories that things then fall under. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Um, I've had to be very aware of ethics when it comes to um, family counseling, especially in situations where parents are separated or divorced. Mm. So confidentiality is is gigantic and but sometimes there's parental agendas and and uh they see the therapist and advocate for what is best for the kid and in their minds what's best might not be the same as what the other parent thinks is best so i think um there can be dilemmas that arise from those circumstances so i think the way that i've dealt with that in the past is just having extremely clear boundaries before counseling begins in terms of uh, how the child is the primary client. And if there are certain dynamics that start to develop, then um, you have, that's communicated very effective, um, immediately and effectively, and, and uh, you respond accordingly, just so you're not sucked into a, a bit of a legal dynamic that might be detrimental or impact the child in a negative way. Right. So make sure that, yeah, confidentiality and and the role of the therapist is, is or the therapy is is clearly defined right yep that is very very good stuff uh i'll throw another one out there which has to do with the the, the ending of therapy what we mm. call the the termination of therapy there's also an ethic ethical standard around the idea of abandonment right um a therapist shouldn't just kind of out of the blue suddenly fire a client, right? Without any sort of explanation or, uh, you know, they need to give other resources or other referrals to other therapists. Um, 
you know, for example, like, let's say, let's say we're talking about one of these dual relationships, something comes up and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't see this client. I've seen this client five times, but I can't see them any longer because, um, you know, I see, I've been seeing their ex-wife for three years and this is, yeah, he knows Jimmy Jenkins. He knows Jimmy Jenkins and Jimmy Jenkins is, (laughs) so, so you can't just like call up the client and say, oh, no more sessions. Goodbye. You know, that doesn't, that would be abandonment. Uh, you have to, to say, look, I'm sorry, but it turns out that uh, I'm not going to be able to see you any longer, but here are some other referrals and you know, it's just, you know, circumstances beyond my control. Something like that, where it's a softer uh, uh, handing off really to somebody else instead of just suddenly cutting someone off. Right. Mm-hmm. It's- uh, yeah. It's interesting though, because clients don't need to terminate with us necessarily. We like, it's not the same way. You could just not, you could just stop going to therapy if you want. There's no pressure to have to explain it, but so there's no pressure there. That's true. That's true. Clients could leave leave voicemail or I guess just no show. show Yeah. Yeah. Ghosting, ghosting happens. Mm -hmm. See person once, or maybe they weren't a good you feel like the therapist is not a good fit for you, or maybe you just feel good and you stop going. Like that happens all the time. It, it's really, yeah. But if there was an actual issue where you as a therapist wanted them to go elsewhere, um, yeah, you probably have to let them know that. Absolutely. Uh, therapists should also be practicing within their scope of competence, right? Um my my example is that uh, someone someone came to me with a severe eating disorder. That's not really my area of, of expertise. Um, uh, and so I, I know people who are much more experienced and have much more expertise in that. So it would be my ethical duty to say, ah, I hear what you're dealing with. I'm sorry that that's actually not my area, but here's some names of other people for you to go see. Um, if I were to proclaim myself to be an expert or to say, oh yeah, sure. I can, I can help you with that. I guarantee I'll fix that in three sessions or less. I mean, any of those things are just not ethical and we can't be uh, telling people that we have expertise in areas we don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good one. For sure. Um, yeah, I know sometimes again, gray area. I've worked for community agencies and government programs. And sometimes you have clients who don't have access to other means of therapy. Um, So you may have 10 or 20 sessions to help support the family or the individuals the best way you can. So it can be a a bit of a difficult situation there at times. Um, Because there are some great experts out there, but sometimes it costs money to go see them, right? So trying to offer the best support you can um, with the understanding that, hey, you do have a specialty, you do have a focus that you should be gravitating towards. So. Mm-hmm. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Hey, how about those popcorn farts, everybody? Yeah, I feel like it's there's actually, a lot. Yeah. Great, uh, great conversation. Who would have guessed that ethics would be such an engaging conversation? It's, yeah, 
we yeah i think brooke mentioned like we have a like for our governing body we have a code of ethics like it's a booklet like it's quite quite in detail so we therapists who um yeah it's serious business making sure we're taking care of people in the appropriate way so uh there's a there's a lot there and it's a good topic it is a good topic even though chris is getting distracted by all the zoom filters oops uh yes if you're going to become a therapist as as dry as it might be it's really crucial that you understand these ethics because they they do arise all the time and it's something that we uh, need to be aware of and competent and dealing with these things because it's just going to be a part of the work that we do for sure yeah absolutely now, Chris and Joanna have filters <laughs> of animals on their screens. Chris has a little dog, and Joanna has a bird. Boy. I, I think I think we've done pretty good with this topic. I don't know. I, I don't think know if anything else is coming up. I think this might be time where we're this uh, might be the wrap up. Now, okay. Well, we're not going to wrap up without at least plugging the fact that we're doing book club next time. Yes. And the book is The Gift of Regret. Power of Regret. Oh. Power of Regret. I think it's Power of Regret. Yeah. Daniel Pink is the author. Uh, Power of Regret. And I think you're going to enjoy it. If you guys haven't read it yet, I think you'll like it. It's good stuff. So we're going to talk about that next. Uh, but for now, we're going to wrap up with this popcorn fart of a topic. And uh, I hope we did some justice. Hope we buttered it up a little bit. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, So that's it for now. Like and subscribe, Apple, Google, Podbean, Audible, Spotify, Super YouTube. Send your questions to info at mentalhealthbootcamp.com. Visit us on Facebook or Instagram. Tell a friend or two. That's it for us. Good night, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. (laughs)